welcome to Swarthmore Presbyterian Church's podcast. This is your host, Alex Evangelista. We are delighted you are here. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and share our podcast. You're now listening to a sermon recorded for October 10th, 2021, titled Inheritors of the Kingdom by Reverend Joyce Shin. Would you please pray with me? May your word, gracious God, be a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. May your word show us the way we are to live. Amen. Often enough, I heard my parents tell me the story of how they, as young adults, immigrated to the United States to begin a new life with just two suitcases. How footloose and free they must have felt. I was reminded of this as I recently received from my daughter a long list of additional items from home that she would like for me to bring to her at college. Different circumstances certainly impact how we relate to our possessions. There was a time earlier in my father's life a time when he was a teenager, the oldest grandson of a landowner in Confucian feudal society, that he was being groomed to have a wholly different relationship to his possessions. By 1949, when communism had completely taken over North Korea, all land had been confiscated from landowners. My father remembers accompanying his grandfather the head of the Shin village, to the top of a mountain from where they could see the mountains and valleys that had belonged to his grandfather. With tears in his eyes, his grandfather looked out at the land and said, all this was to become yours. Wanting to console his grandfather, my father, just a boy at the time, said, Grandfather, the land belongs to the farmers who work on it. Upon hearing this, his grandfather turned to him and said, Is that what you're learning at church? Who knows from where a boy in his early teens would get an idea like that? From church? More likely from the communism to which he had been exposed. The point of this particular memory for my father, however, was that although he may not have quite said the right thing to comfort his grandfather, and despite the shock that his grandfather may have felt at his grandson's words, my father remembers the love, mixed with perhaps some wonder with which his grandfather looked at him in that moment. This is one of the last memories my father has of being with his grandfather. Not long afterwards, the Korean War broke out, displacing many people and separating them from their families, including my father from his. Like others who had owned property, his grandfather would be killed by the communists for being wealthy. 
History teaches us that wealth and property are such very serious issues. How we relate to them can have all too serious consequences. Violence, murder, war, slavery, robbery, jealousy. It shouldn't be surprising then that Jesus would have a lot to say about wealth, not wealth in and of itself, but more precisely, how we relate ourselves to it. The story we heard today from the Gospel of Mark is found also in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. All three Gospels tell essentially the same story. Jesus is approached by a rich man who asks him what he needs to do in order to inherit eternal life. From the outset, it's clear that this man is eager. He runs up to Jesus and kneels at his feet. It turns out that this man is also earnest. He has obeyed God's commandments since his youth. Like so many other stories in the Gospel of Mark, this is a call story in which Jesus says, come and follow me. It is, however, the only such call story in which the person called by Jesus responds not by following, but by going away. Herein lies the lesson. What is so problematic about wealth? According to this Bible story, the problem with wealth is that we have difficulty in parting with it. Mark tells us that when Jesus, looking at the man, loved him and said, go dispose of your wealth and follow me. The man at first shocked, then went away in sorrow because he had so many possessions. Jesus does not say here that wealth is inherently bad. Wealth itself is not a sin. Give away all your possessions is not one of the Ten Commandments, like the commandment not to kill, not to steal, not to lie. In fact, according to Jewish tradition, wealth was considered a blessing from God, a sign of divine favor, so much so that in his final address to the people of Israel, Moses had told them that if they obeyed the commandments, the Lord would make them abound in prosperity. The books of Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Proverbs speak of wealth as one of the rewards God bestows on the righteous. In fact, the biblical passage we heard this morning, when Jesus is talking with his disciples, Jesus says, that anyone who gives up their riches in order to follow him will receive a hundredfold, both in this age and the age to come, not just family, but houses and fields. It seems that Jesus can envision the presence of wealth in the kingdom of God. The problem with wealth, then, lies in our relationship to it. When we have difficulty parting from it, how can we follow Jesus? To his disciples, Jesus says, how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. 
He goes on to say, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. In an era before microscopes and the atomic theory, Jesus was speaking to an audience for whom the eye of a needle was the smallest opening through which a thing could fit. And a camel was probably the largest animal they would ever see. His disciples would quickly get the point that Jesus was speaking of a total impossibility. Perplexed and exasperated, the disciples asked him, then who can be saved? If a person whose righteousness has merited a wealth of possessions cannot acquire eternal life, then who can? To that question, Jesus responds, for mortals, it is impossible, but not for God. For God, all things are possible. When something impossible for humans is made possible by God, we call that a miracle. And this seems to be Jesus's point. Salvation, eternal life, and the kingdom of God are miracles. Yes. We have to give away and share our wealth in order to experience this miracle. Because something miraculous happens when we do this, when we are generous for the sake of God's kingdom. In his thoughtful book entitled, We Make a Life by What We Give, physician and philanthropist Richard Gunderman writes, giving helps us to understand that the most important things in life do not diminish, but instead actually grow in the sharing. For example, he writes, if you give me $5, you're, you are $5 poorer. But if you help me learn something important, we're both better off. Dr. Gunderman takes care to understand philanthropy as having a generative nature. It would be too narrow a view to focus solely on the redistribution of, or transfer of wealth or other goods from people who have to people who do not have. Redistributing commodities, he thinks, doesn't necessarily enrich the world. This is why Dr. Gunderman wants to expand our inventory of philanthropic assets beyond money and material commodities to include other assets and resources, such as how we view people, ourselves, and others. By viewing one another in love, seeing the intrinsic worth of one another, and investing in the flourishing of every person, communities can experience the growth that results only from sharing. Some of you may be familiar with the writings of preacher and author Lillian Daniel. Her first book is called Tell It Like It Is. It's a book that reclaims the practice of testimonies in the church. She writes about the New England Congregationalist congregation that she formerly served. As members of that congregation decided to experiment with the practice of testimony, they decided that they would speak and worship about God's grace in the world and in their everyday lives 
and about the spirit's often subtle and sometimes miraculous workings. During the first year of their experiment, they decided that they would focus their testimonies on giving testimonies. As Lillian listened to giving testimonies over the course of a year, she was struck by how holistic their approach was. She writes, the speakers may have prepared themselves to speak about money or a possible capital campaign, but what came out was a full story of faith that generally began or ended with the church. I don't think they were avoiding the subject of giving to the church, but rather they saw their lives as a whole, wrapped in God. And so a testimony about increasing one's pledge was connected to the church of one's youth or to the community in which they now worshiped. Testimonies on financial pledging and giving turned into testimonies about the people, the community, and the values that meant the most to them. It seems to me that the man who approached Jesus was searching for the highest good, the highest value. What must I do to inherit eternal life, he asks. Unfortunately, he did not stick around long enough to hear the rest of what Jesus had to say. He didn't hang out long enough with the other followers of Jesus to know what it feels like to be cared for, prayed for, forgiven and reconciled, to stand in solidarity with and be persecuted for the sake of someone else or something you believe in. So when Jesus told him, go, sell, and give, so that he could come and follow, the man didn't know that were he to do this, he would generate a hundredfold capital. For truly I tell you, Jesus explained to his disciples, there is no one who has left his house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Notice that Jesus said that the hundredfold possessions would be accompanied by persecutions. Jesus is up front about what happens when you follow him. There is an immeasurable price to be paid. To follow him, you're asked to be extraordinarily generous by being one of his followers, a member of his body. You end up taking on the cares and concerns, the prayers and the problems of one another. You end up committing yourselves to each other's causes bearing each other's burdens, and sharing each other's sorrows. You end up loving your neighbor as you love yourself. The good news is that none of us lacks the means to be generous in this way, because in calling us, Jesus already loves us. We already are enough. We don't need to bring with us wealth, possessions, and property. We can leave all that behind 
in order to follow Christ into God's kingdom. I like to imagine that my father's grandfather, though he didn't know what my father was learning in church, would have found a deep solace and even a sense of wonder at the peace and confidence with which his young grandson could walk into a future that God had planned for him. Looking at his grandson with such love, surely he knew that it would not be the wealth, possessions, and property that would be of greatest value to his grandson. For even in losing and leaving all that behind, his inheritance, like yours and mine, is already rich in this age and in the age to come. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this sermon, recorded for October 10th, 2021, titled, Inheritors of the Kingdom, by Reverend Joy Shin. We'll see you soon, and may the peace of Christ be with you.